you got your Bible, Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. And as we come to the first chapter of Job in the 13th verse, you're going to notice that we're coming from the unseen to the seen, from the unfamiliar to the familiar, from the heavenlies back down to earth. We begin the chapter in Job chapter 1 on earth, looking at Job and his life. We immediately are transported into the heavenlies to be able to, able to see what's going on in the unseen world. And there's a conversation there between the Lord and Satan because Satan and his minions must give an account to God. We saw that last week. They can't do what they want to do. They're, they're, they're accountable to the living God for all that they do do. And so they come to give an account. And the Lord asks Satan if he's considered a servant Job because he wants Satan to realize that no matter what he does, Job will never turn his back on the Lord. But, Job, but Satan thinks he can. He thinks he can convince Job and get Job to turn his whole life around and against God. So Satan departs from the heavenlies and begins his assault on the life of Job. That's where we left off last week. So let me pick up the narrative with you in verse number 13. We'll read it, and then we'll look at it together. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking, wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Satan departs only because he has permission from God. God gave him permission to do anything he wanted to Job except touch his life. Could not touch the man. So Satan had permission to do what he wanted to do outside of Job the man. And so you begin to understand, as we talked about last week, that Satan is a very real individual and he's a very relentless person. Relentless. In fact, the the, the watershed chapter in the Bible about satanic warfare and how Satan operates is Revelation chapter 12. Because in Revelation chapter 12, it takes you through the history of the world from day one to the end. It's quite a chapter if you study it in depth. But it begins by telling you how how when Satan was cast out of heaven, he took a third of the, the angels with him. Now, we know when he was cast out, he was cast out morally, but he wasn't cast out geographically. How do we know that? Because Revelation 12.10 tells us that he accuses the brethren day and night before the throne of God. So that means he has access to heaven to accuse the brethren, people like you and me. 
But he was cast out morally because of his rebellion against the Lord God Most High. But how does Satan operate? Well, Revelation 12 tells you. It tells us in Revelation chapter 12 these words. The dragon stood before the woman, the woman is Israel, who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Way after Genesis chapter 3, and we don't know exactly when Satan fell. Bible doesn't necessarily tell us the time limit for that or timetable for that. But we know that comes Genesis chapter 3, there's the temptation of Adam and Eve. But when you come to Revelation 12, it tells us that at the birth of Christ, when the woman who is Israel is about to give birth to the Christ child, the dragon stands over the child so that he might devour the child. So how does Satan do that? Well, he has to have permission, first of all. And what does he do? He incites Herod, remember, to kill all the male babies two years and under, thinking that he could kill this king that would oppose him as the king of Israel, so he thought he was. But the Lord protected the child, protected the parents, sent them to Egypt, and brought them back again. And then after he was baptized, the Spirit of the Lord drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Remember that? Matthew chapter 4. So we see Satan's operation with the Son of God, trying to devour the child. And the temptation came in three different waves, but one of them was the fact that he would give him the kingdoms of the world. He could bypass the cross if he just fall down and worship Satan. Again, the dragon trying to devour the child. Then you had the religious establishment. They always hated Christ. They wanted to kill the Christ, right? But they could not until it was a time where the Lord had predetermined his death. There was Judas Iscariot. He also was used by Satan, the son of perdition. So when it talks about the dragon being over the child to devour the child, it's all about how Satan incites people to come against the Christ child, to kill him, to keep him off the cross, to keep him from the plan of redemption so he can win. But he loses. Well, if you read on in Revelation 12, it says he goes after the woman, and the woman flees to the wilderness because he wants to destroy Israel. See, if Satan can destroy Israel all throughout the centuries, we notice how People have tried to rid the Jewish nation of all the Israelites to kill them. So all the Hitlers and all those who have come against the Jewish people way back in the days of Esther and Haman and all of his uh, desire to rid the world of the Jewish nation, Satan is trying to kill the Jews off, but God protects them. God watches over them. It also tells us that There is a war in heaven in Revelation chapter 12 between Michael and the dragon, who is Satan. And this is when he was cast out geographically during the tribulation. He's actually cast out because the brethren are now in heaven. There's no need to accuse the brethren day and night any longer. So Satan is cast out of heaven. And he comes down to the earth. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 12, woe to the earth, for Satan has come down continues to pursue Israel to kill her, but he can't get her. So the Bible tells us in Revelation 12 that he pursues those who are her offspring. Those are Gentiles. That's you and me. And he goes after them to kill them, to devour them. 
So Revelation 12 becomes a watershed chapter in the Bible about satanic warfare against the Christ child, against Israel, against holy angels, against Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can read all throughout the New Testament how that happens. In 1 Corinthians 7, where he tried to destroy, destroy marriages, right? And he wants to separate men from women and destroy marriages because that's the way it's always been from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, when Satan attacked Adam and Eve. When Adam was alone, Satan never attacked him. But as soon as God gave him Eve, what happens? Satan shows up. He's going to destroy that which God has put together. He wants to destroy marriages. So he does all he can to do that. We've looked at Ephesians 4, where it tells us not, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, right? Because you give a foothold for Satan. You become bitter and unforgiving and hold grudges, all those kind of things. We're told not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, are part of life. Why? Because they're of the world. The world's passing away. But Satan uses all those things to lure us into temptation, to deceive us. But he is real, and he is relentless. And the reality of Satan is seen clearly in the life of Job. And Job never knows it. Never knows. Because God never tells him. Never tells him. So Job has no idea. But on this day, as the text says in verse number 13, now on the day, (coughs) excuse me, that day, Satan now is going to attack and assault Job. So, the title of our sermon is Disaster Strikes. What happens when disaster strikes? Because disaster strikes, number one, unexpectedly. Number two, relentlessly. Number three, uncontrollably. Number four, incomprehensibly. Number five, insurmountably. Number six, as well as divinely, yet purposefully. Now, I'll repeat all those for you as we go. But that's our outline for this evening, as you will see in the text before us in verses 13 down through verse number 19. First of all, when disaster strikes, it comes unexpectedly. Now, on this day, when they were gathered together at the oldest son's house, it was a time of happiness, joy, celebration. Disasters are disasters become, they come because they come unexpectedly. There wasn't a warning <coughs> excuse me, that Job had that on this day these things were going to happen. He didn't have a warning. They would come unexpectedly. They would come when he wasn't aware of what was going to happen. It was a day that was supposed to be delightful, but it ended up being dreadful. It was a day that was, at the outset, terrific, but ended up tragic. It was a day when There was a celebration, but that celebration would turn to destruction. There's a knock at the door. Job has no idea who's on the other side. 
It's like when you get a knock at the door and you open the door and there stands a police officer. Unexpectedly. Or you receive a phone call in the middle of the night. Right? Unexpected phone call. And the voice says, I'm sorry to inform you, but your mother or your father or your son or your daughter has, has passed. Disasters come unexpectedly. Think about December 7, 1941, right? The destruction of Pearl Harbor. It came unexpectedly. No one was really aware that that was going to happen, but it was a disaster. How about November 22nd, 1963, in Dallas, when there was a motorcade with the president, John F. Kennedy, in great celebration, <coughs> no one expected an assassination on that day, but it came. How about September 11, 2001? All those people who got on planes, they got on planes <clears throat> because they were going home from vacation. They were going to visit loved ones. Little did they know those planes would be driven into the Twin Towers or driven into the Pentagon or driven into the fields of Pennsylvania. Those were all unexpected disasters. What about just what took place in Uvalde, Texas? when all those parents sent their kids off to school, thinking they were going to get a great education and have a great time with their friends. A very happy day that ended up a very horrific day for those who were shot and killed. Disaster comes unexpectedly. Job wasn't sitting at home waiting for a disaster. No, he was doing what he always does. He was probably getting ready to offer sacrifices for his children, which he did on the days of his celebration. We learned about that in the first five verses. He wasn't expecting there to be a disaster on this day. But you see, Satan is the destroyer, Apollyon, Abaddon, the destroyer, Revelation 9, right? He wants to destroy your happiness, destroy your joy, destroy your peace. Destroy anything that would make you want to follow the Lord and serve the Lord. That's why the Bible tells us in the book of John's gospel, the 10th chapter, that Satan is a thief that comes to kill and to destroy. He steals joy. He steals happiness because he seeks to destroy all that God is doing. So disasters come unexpectedly. Number two, they come relentlessly. Relentlessly. Think about this. None of us can understand the relentless pursuit of Satan like this. None of us can. Because they come in waves and the waves come one after another without any respite. There's no time to cry. There's no time to pray. There's no time to make a phone call to your pastor and say, hey, listen, the Sabaeans came or the Chaldeans came. No time. There's no time to 
to hold your wife and hug your wife and say, hey, honey, I am so sorry this is taking place. Why? Because one person comes. And before he's done speaking, another one comes. Before he's done speaking, another one comes. And finally, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, at least my children are okay until the next one comes. It's relentless. There's not even time to take a breath. There's not even time to take a nap. There's not time to do anything. One after another, after another, after another. Bang, 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 bang. Because Satan is relentless. He's going to do everything he can to destroy Job's life. And will stop at nothing to make sure he has no joy. The Bible says in Psalm 34, verse number 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's an understatement when it comes to Job's life. Because he had affliction one after another. Satan's plan was to destroy Job's life. And so Job had no time to take a breath before the next person came. It reads so interesting. I alone have escaped, and while he was still speaking, another came. I alone have escaped to tell you, while he was still speaking, another came. I alone escaped to tell you, while he was still speaking, another came. Isn't it interesting that Satan always left one alive? Just one. Because somebody has to be the bearer of bad news. So he leaves one person alive. He is a murderer. He was the murderer from the beginning. He is the father of lies. He is the deceiver. He's the destroyer of all things. But he's going to keep one person alive so he can bring bad news to Job. Because Job has to hear it firsthand that something disastrous has taken place. He believes that if he relentlessly attacks Job's life, Job will curse God. Job will turn his back on God. But you see, Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't know. Doesn't know what Job's thinking because he he can't know those things. He doesn't know how Job's going to respond because he can't see the future. All he knows is what God tells him. All he can do is what God allows him to do. But he doesn't know what the response is going to be because he cannot see the future, nor can he read Job's mind. He doesn't know, but he believes that this will be that which destroys the man's life. So when disaster strikes, it comes unexpectedly, it comes relentlessly. Number three, it comes uncontrollably. Note, two came from nations, two came from nature, right? Two disasters came from nations, two came from nature. Very important. We cannot control what nations do, and we cannot control what the weather does. I don't care what the Democratic Party tells you about climate change, okay? They cannot control the weather. They think they can, but they cannot. Only God controls the weather. I I hope you understand that. I hope you know know that, that God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. Only God does that. Nobody else can. But they're uncontrollable. You had the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. The Sabaeans 
from the related word Sheba, which refers to Saudi Arabia, in verses 14 and 15, they steal the, the oxen and the donkeys and they kill the servants except for one. Yeah, the Chaldeans, they steal, they slay, they, they, they want the camels, they take them. They come in a band, three different bands, three different directions. They kill everyone except for one. And then there's fire and wind. Fire that comes out of heaven, lightning maybe. Fire and brimstone out of heaven coming down and consuming others. 7,000 sheep were killed plus the servants. It's a big fire. And then you had the wind, tornado, hurricane, who knows. It gathers up, destroys the house that falls on his 10 children and instantly kills all 10 of them. And one servant is left to come and tell him the story. There's no control over that. You can't control armies and you can't control nature. God's in charge of all those things. Interesting that Satan was given permission to have power over nature. Have power to call fire down from heaven. He just can't do it on his own. He has to have permission because he doesn't have power over those things. Only God does. But in this case, God allows him permission to do these things. Remember what the Bible says over in in Psalm, Psalm 78, verse 26. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind. That's God. Over in Psalm 89, it says, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verse number 29 says, or verse 25 says, for he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Verse 29 He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Our Lord is in control of all weather, all seas, all waves, all snow, all rain. He's in control of all of it. Only rains when God wants it to rain. The sun only shines when God wants it to shine. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's in complete and total control of everything. Remember on the boat in Mark 4, when the disciples were there and there was a storm, a storm that made them fear for their lives. And when he hushed the storm, they they, they woke him and said, do you not care that we are perishing? And the Lord gets up, and I tell the story every time we go to Israel, we're on the Sea of Galilee because it's such a fantastic story. He says, hush, be still. And the sea became like glass instantaneously. And what was the response of the disciples? What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He's from another dimension. He's from another universe. He's from something that we're not well aware of. Because the wind and the waves obey him. Of course they do. 
He's in charge of the wind and the waves. And of course, he rebukes his men by saying, Oh, ye of little faith. How is it that you of all people have no faith? Why is it you are cowards? Did you not read Psalm 78? Did you not read Psalm 107? Did you not read Psalm 89? Don't you know I control all these things? And yet you sit here in fear. Why? I control them. I'm in charge of them. And yet you had not enough faith to believe that I could hush the sea. Because he does. At the same time, we realize that the Lord says in the book of Lamentations, the third chapter, these words, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? <coughs> both good and ill go forth. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? In other words, <clears throat> what mortal man can complain to God about what he does because he's filled with sin and God has no sin? Our Lord is in control of everything. Isaiah 45, verse number 7. I am the creator, he says, of calamity. Amos 3, verse number 6. If there's calamity in the city, it is I who did it. Now, you have to understand that. But yet, God allows Satan to have control over nature on this day so that he could destroy or potentially seek to destroy Job's joy and destroy his family. Because it was Satan who caused the wind to blow. It was Satan who caused fire to come down from heaven. This was his, his plan. God says, I'm going to give you permission, but you cannot touch Job. That allowed Satan to do what he wanted to do, except he couldn't touch Job. Now, if he wanted to touch Job, he still couldn't. Because God didn't give permission. That's later on in the story, right? Because Satan can't do anything without permission. He has to ask for permission. He has to be granted permission to do what he does. And so, sure enough... When difficulty comes, it comes unexpectedly, relentlessly, and uncontrollably. It also comes incomprehensibly. Incomprehensibly. All of his possessions, gone. His business, gone. All of his material substance, gone. His family, gone. For the first time. And he and his wife's lives, they are without children. They're dead. They're gone. In a moment. Maybe he says to himself, if I just wouldn't have answered the door, none of this would have happened. But I had to answer the door. I had to open the door. Get all the bad news. We just put our head under our covers and just shut off the world. We think nothing bad will ever happen. But it does. And so, incomprehensibly, 
comes the loss that he faces. Interesting. Satan doesn't touch his wife. Interesting. God didn't say you can't touch his wife. So you just can't touch him. But it's very interesting that Satan didn't touch his wife. He let her live. In fact, she loses everything Job loses. We can't be too hard on her. I know sometimes we want to be. Curse God and die. But remember, she loses everything Job loses. Except she doesn't lose her health. And Job will. But she doesn't. But instead of being the comforting wife that she could have been, instead of being the loving wife that would come alongside of her husband and and be with him, she just wanted him to curse God and die and just be done with it. But Job wouldn't do that. When disaster strikes, it comes unexpectedly, relentlessly, uncontrollably, incomprehensibly, insurmountably. Insurmountable. Devastation. The emotion that Job must have been going through. Just for a moment, put yourself in his house, opening the door and hearing the news about your business about your children, about all that you possess, gone. All your offspring, gone. Everything that allows you to make money, gone. It's all gone. In a moment, on a day that began so joyously, but ended so tragically. No explanation. No one comes along and says, hey, let me tell you what happened. Let me explain to you the best I can. No, no explanation. No comfort, right? And the worst, silence from heaven. Silence from heaven. Silence that will last almost for eternity in Job's mind. Because he will sit for a week, as we will see in days ahead. He will sit for a week in silence with his friends gathered around him, just watching him sit in an ash heap with sores all over his body when no one says anything. And the silence is deafening. No comfort, no explanation, no silence. The emptiness all at once in a brief moment of time. Everyone is absolutely devastated except Satan. Satan's delighted. This is his plan. This is great. Everything is gone. The man has been, has been devastated. He has nothing left. Satan sits, watches, and waits for Job to curse God. But, it says in verse 20, this is next week's sermon. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and what? He worshipped. Worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. 
the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Satan wasn't expecting that. He was expecting a totally different response that never came. But that was Job's response. In tragedy and disaster that came unexpectedly, uncontrollably, insurmountably, incomprehensibly, but it came divinely and purposefully. Divinely and purposefully. Job would say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. But did the Lord take it away or did Satan take it away? Did the Lord cause the wind to blow or did Satan cause the wind to blow? Did the Lord formulate the the Sabaeans to come against his possessions, the Chaldeans? Or did Satan do that? This is a very, very important topic. Questions you have to answer. There's a realm in in theology called theodicy. And theodicy deals with the defense of a just God who allows evil to happen in the world. That's called theodicy. A term that was born in 1710 by a German philosopher. Theos, God, decay, justice. The justice of God that comes during evil, disasters. How can a good God, how can an all-loving God, how can an omnipotent God, how can an omniscient God who knows everything and controls everything allow these kinds of evil things to happen to people? In fact, the atheists say it this way. They have their own doxology. That's how it goes. Blame God from whom all cyclones blow. Blame him, all creatures here below. Blame him who knocks down church and steeple, who sends the floods and drowns the people. That's the atheist doxology. They want to blame God for all these things. Well, God can't be God if he allows these things to happen. He can't be all-powerful if he allows these things to happen. He certainly can't be a good, loving God if these kind of things happen to people such as Job, who was upright, blameless, God-fearing, and turning away from evil. Ah, but they don't understand God. They don't understand the sovereignty of God, right? Or God who, who consciously permits or directly causes everything that ever happens on the planet, and in the universe, the sovereignty of God. He directly causes it or consciously permits it. Here, he would consciously permit something to happen to Job. And Satan, can Satan cause mass murder? Can Satan cause volcanic eruptions? Can Satan cause tsunamis? Can Satan cause fire to fall from heaven? Can Satan cause tornadoes, hurricanes, disasters? According to Job chapter 1, yes, he can. Only if God gives him permission. Only if God grants him permission. Because God is still in charge. Satan reports to God. He doesn't want to report to God. He never wants to go to see God face to face. 
That's why he rebelled against God in the beginning. Why go see God? He has to go see God. He has to give an account to God. He's accountable to God. He just can't do whatever he wants to do without asking permission from the sovereign God of the universe. Because God who is sovereign directly causes or consciously permits everything that happens in the world, in the universe, for all time. Either God's in charge of everything, or he's not in charge of anything. He's in charge of everything. That's so important to to understand. One author said it this way. Theodicy is not to suggest, of course, that God needs our defense. God does not have a fragile ego that is easily bruised by the accusations of atheists. The reason we speak of defending God is not to suggest that God is somehow vulnerable to the attacks of human enemies. We speak of defending God in a philosophical sense because in order to advance the gospel of Christ, we sometimes break down the faulty arguments and false ideologies that Satan has planted in unbelieving minds. The defense of God that we find in these opening pages of Job could be stated this way. Satan is an independent agent with free will. He does what he likes. God has given him areas in which he can operate. And God sometimes permits Satan to initiate a major disaster, a great earthquake, a volcanic explosion, a war, a mass murder. Yes, God is in ultimate sovereign control of the universe. But Satan's free will is the force that instigates evil in the world. This is why the book of Job was given to us, to show that there is a deeper reason that God permits tragedy than the superficial answers that we often give. This theodicy, this defense of God's love and justice, will be unfolded to us as we press deeper into the book. In the pages of Job, we will see that God is not, as Satan would like us to believe, a cold, impersonal being who does not care about us, nor is he a cruel and sadistic God who afflicts us with tortures and disasters for his own twisted pleasure. Again, as Satan would have us believe. Rather, God is merciful and compassionate. Out of the pain and loss and question of Job, a picture will emerge of the mercy and compassion of a loving God. And so it is true. That our Lord controls everything. The disaster was divinely given, yet purposefully given for the glory of Almighty God. God will always be glorified. God will always put himself on display. And God will never allow his glory to be given to another. Satan will never receive his glory. He tried to take that glory, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, but he could not have it. God will get all the glory because the Bible speaks very clearly concerning God's sovereignty. Let me share it to you this way. Ecclesiastes 7, verse number 13. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one 
as well as the other. Do you get that? God made the day of prosperity. God made the day of adversity. Why? It tells us. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Just so man will never understand anything. God keeps you confused. Why? He just wants you to trust him. To believe in him. That's the whole thing about disasters. Natural or physical, however they may come, God just wants you to trust him through them. Job, Job would say it well in Job 23, right? Job 23. What does Job say? He says, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot is held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique. Who can turn him? What his soul desires that he does? For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. This is Job 23. We're down the road in the conversation with his friends, right? And Job knows that God will do what's appointed for him no matter what. Because God's in charge. He has a firm grasp of God's sovereignty with no Bible to read concerning the sovereignty of God. No theological teacher to teach him about God's sovereignty and God's theodicy on the defense of God and his justice over Natural disasters. No. He just knows that God's in charge of everything. He believes that. So the Bible says in Isaiah 46, Remember this and be assured. We call it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God is speaking to Israel. And then in chapter 47, he talks about Israel's future. He gives a prophecy 175 years down the road. How Israel will go into Babylonian captivity and they will be there for 70 years. But Babylon will be destroyed because God had preordained their destruction because he knew that Babylon would not take care of his people even though God put them in there for 70 years. And then he destroys Babylon in one night. If you're with us in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, we studied that in depth because God's in charge. He's in control of everything. Nothing happens by accident. Everything is by a God-given divine appointment. You must understand that. If you miss that, your whole life will be a mess. Because you're already out of control of your life as it is. To realize that you're more out of control of your life is only going to send you into a tailspin. But you've got to trust someone. Who do you trust? God says, trust me. Wait upon me. Look to me. 
So we can read a verse like Romans 8, 28 and says, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know that? How do we know that? How can we know that? You see, there's something about that in the sovereignty of God and how he operates that creates confidence in me that causes comfort in me and cultivates courage in me. Knowing that things are done divinely and purposefully, it creates in me only confidence. It cultivates only courage and causes only comfort. Knowing that someone's in charge. It's a good thing that you're not in charge because you just messed it up all, all the more. But somebody who can actually do something about it is in charge. And that's the Lord God of Israel. And that creates confidence in me. Confidence not in me, but confidence in God. Confidence in the power of Scripture. Confidence in the prayers of the saints. Confidence in the provision of the Spirit. And confidence in the promise of my Savior. I have great confidence. Why? Not in me, but because I know that all things work together for good. Not that all things are good, but all things work together for good. Well, how can they work together for good? But I'm not putting it together. God is. And it's ultimately going to come to his glory and to his honor. So I have to trust him through the tragedy. I have to believe in him through the hardship. I have to lean on him because of the power of the scriptures. Look what it says in, in Psalm 34, verse number 19. Oh, verse 15. Listen to this. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You see, there's something about God's sovereignty that creates confidence in me. Not because of me, but because of the, of the power of the Scripture and what it says. The Bible says in Psalm 37, verse number 39, these words. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse number 3, says this. Psalm 91, verse number 3. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. 
I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. See, the promise and the power of Scripture is so poignant because it deals with our afflictions. It deals with our hardships, how God promises to deliver his people. Was God going to deliver Job? Yes. God had a plan. Was Job delivered in his own time? No. But he would be delivered in God's time. And God would do it the way he wanted to do it, how he wanted to do it, when he wanted to do it, because he was in charge of all that. But he would deliver his righteous saint because he promised. And the God who promises never lies. There's great confidence that we have because of the power of Scripture. Because the prayers of the saints, the Bible speaks of James 5, 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Ephesians 6 talks about praying one for another. I have confidence that people will pray and, 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 and lift me before the throne of God. How about the provision of the Spirit? God provides us with the Spirit. Why? To strengthen us, to encourage us. It's called the Spirit of grace. Without the Spirit of grace, we would never be able to receive the kind of grace that God dispenses to His own. But because of the Spirit of grace, the provision of the Spirit, God takes us through these times, it creates confidence. Plus the power of the Savior to do what He does to deliver His people from their pain. While disasters come uncontrollably, unexpectedly, relentlessly, incomprehensibly, insurmountably, they always come divinely and purposefully. God has a purpose. That purpose is ultimately for your good and his glory. It creates confidence in me. It causes comfort in me. We know that the Bible say we think all things work together for good. We hope all things work together for good. I'm not sure, but I think they're going to work together. No, we know. How do we know? Because God said so. That's how we know. So when tragedy comes, when disaster strikes, be sure to this, that we know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, not for those who don't love God. Only for those who love God and only those who are called according to his purpose. So if you don't love God and you haven't been called according to his purpose, maybe things don't work out so good for you. It'll work out pretty bad for you. But those who know the Lord, things work out great because God is in control. Think about it. Joseph would know that all things would work together for good because God took him through terrible times. He came out the better man because of all the tragedy he faced. But nothing like Job. But there's no character in all the scriptures who face what Job faced. Even Daniel, thrown to the lion's den, threatened with death. Nothing compared to Job. None. He lost everything. He becomes the quintessential example of how to handle suffering in a way that honors God. And all of us need to master his life and what God was doing in his life. 
But not only does the fact that God is divinely and purposefully overseeing everything create confidence in me and cause comfort in me, but it cultivates courage in me. Courage. The Bible says in, in Proverbs, I'm sorry, yeah, Proverbs 20, verse number 24. A man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Psalm 31, verse number 15, my times are in God's hands. That gives me courage. I'm not out here all by myself trying to live and make it through life. Nope. God, my times are in God's hands. My life is in his hands. So I can face each day with the courage I need because of the strength that God infuses in me. Job's response, absolutely remarkable. We've read it a million times over again. Maybe not quite a million, okay? But a lot of times, right? Ah, the Lord giveth, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And all this, Job did not sin or blame God. But you have to understand the magnitude of this man's tragedy. You have to put yourself in his house, hearing what he has heard for the very first time, facing the tragedy of losing every single thing. But he does not know that this is just the beginning of his suffering. He doesn't know. Because his own physical flesh will be affected unexpectedly uncontrollably, incomprehensibly, insurmountably, but still divinely and purposefully. But he doesn't know what's going to come yet. He probably goes to bed at night thinking, wow, I've worshipped the Lord. This is it. I'm glad I never have to relive this day. Only to find out that very soon after this, His whole life is afflicted with pain. A pain that we can't even begin to imagine. An affliction that we can't even begin to comprehend this side of the book of Job. We don't get it. To be able to be in pain from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, 24-7, not finding a place to sit comfortably, no morphine to take, No drugs, no Percocet, no Darvacet. Nothing to ease the pain. Constant, unrelenting pain. Again, none of us understand the pain. None of us understand the loss. None of us can comprehend the tragedy this man faces. But through it all, he trusted his God. We need to learn from this man. He becomes the quintessential hero of the scriptures. This man speaks to us like no other man speaks to us because every one of us goes through tragedy. All of us go through, unfortunately, some kind of disaster in our lifetime. Things that we cannot control. Things that seem so insurmountable. Things that we can't even begin to comprehend how we ever handle it. And we learn from a man named Job who faced unmerciful tragedy.
But yet, in all this, Job did not sin against his God. What a man. But that whole tone was set because the first five verses. He was blameless. He was upright. He was God-fearing and turning away from evil. That character prepared him for all the tragedy that would come in his life. That's what caused him not to sin against his God, not to blame his God, but to simply trust his God. So I'll go back and say it again. Where is your character? Where is your life? Are you an upright person? Are you a blameless person? Are you a God-fearing person? Do you turn constantly away from evil all the time? Or are you the kind of person that likes to run to evil? Whether you're upright or not, it makes no difference. You don't fear God, but you certainly fear man. And you're not blameless, but blameful. Because you will not live above reproach. That's just going to prepare you to be miserable during your suffering. All that's going to prepare you to to lose the battle. But the character is right. And the character is God-honoring. And the character is where God wants it to be because God would say the same thing about Job later on in chapter 1, right? Have you considered my servant Job? He's upright, God-fearing. He's blameless. He turns away from evil. Satan, have you considered him? Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't want to be that way because God might offer me up to Satan. Maybe so. But better to be that way and God offer you up to Satan than to not be that way and be left alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for today and the opportunity you give us to study your word. So much we had not even covered so much that we need to study, so much that we need to understand, so much that, that we need to grasp. And yet, Lord, the pages of Scripture go far beyond anything we could ever imagine that happened in this man's life. And yet, Lord, you've recorded it all for us to read, to study, to learn, that we might know how to respond in a way that honors you when disaster strikes. So, God, go before us. Give us wisdom. And give us strength that we might live for you until you come again as you most surely will. In Jesus' name, amen.